Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of The Litigation War Room, I speak with Elliot Wagenheim. Elliot is a seasoned litigator as well as a frequent public speaker and podcaster. Elliot is also the creator of Wagenheim U, a learning platform for construction subcontractors. Elliot discusses a very interesting construction litigation case that he handled and shares insights on physical presence, or what he calls blocking and staging, in the courtroom. The Litigation War Room is a proud sponsor of the State Bar of Michigan's Business Law Symposium on January 20th, 2022. At the end of today's episode, stick around for my entertaining conversation with Roy Sexton of Clark Hill Law, who offers a preview of the symposium panel discussion called Building Your Brand and Protecting It. Elliot Wagenheim, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you could be here, Elliot. Before the interview, we were chatting about a couple of interesting cases you've handled, the Universal case and the Elevated case and about what you call effective blocking and staging in the courtroom. I'm excited, and I know our listeners will be excited to hear about that. But first, let's talk a little bit about your litigation practice. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and about your law firm? Sure. Um, So from a litigation perspective, let's see, I had my first jury trial six days after being sworn in as a member of the bar because I worked right out of law school, which was, believe it or not, some 34 years ago. Uh, for my dad, and he had a general practice, hated litigation, hated talking to juries. So he was uh, very excited when I came into the practice and said, great, here's the jury trial, go. From that point, I did a lot of litigation, and I gravitated toward two areas. One is general business, so commercial, small to mid-sized businesses. And the other is construction. And the way you get into construction is you do one big construction case and you've got an owner, you've got a general contractor and a thousand subcontractors. And so you become known in your area as doing construction. So I've been litigating for the better part of three decades and I do some transactional work as well, but all in the business and construction area. Construction cases, you know, when I have done some work in that area, I find there, even though many of them boil down to contract disputes. They seem very different from other types of cases in a variety of ways. Um, Can you tell our listeners a bit about what makes a construction case different from other kinds of cases? Sure. First of all, one of the things that I was surprised to learn when I first got into construction is that I think of construction projects as being built with concrete footers and on soil and all that stuff. And that may be true, but construction cases are built on paper, lots and lots of paper, whether it's real or virtual. There are progress meeting minutes and change orders and emails back and forth. Because if you're trying to pull a multi, multi multi-million dollar project out of the ground, there is a lot of coordination among the general and all of the trades and the owner. And so building a record and then when you're a litigator, sifting through tens of thousands of documents, and those documents could be really big, thick contracts you said you've done construction, so you know those contracts are built on provisions that contain 19 comma sentences and right. a lot of phrases like notwithstanding anything set forth here into the contrary. And then you've got emails and sometimes, God help us, texts back and forth between the principles. So 
you've got to understand the document intensive nature, but also construction has its own language, its own course of dealing, um, its own rules of engagement that are markedly different from just your general run-of-the-mill business contract that you might have to engage a wedding planner or, or do an event or something like that. It's markedly different. And I know you've been involved in some other ventures. You're an active public speaker. Can you tell us a bit about that? I am. So when I went into law school, the Washington Post ran an article that said that law schools are full of candidates who are bright and ambitious and have no particular talent whatsoever. And I can't speak to for many people, but I can say that that's the way I thought of myself. Yeah, I'm fairly bright, was certainly ambitious, but I couldn't draw. I wasn't musically inclined. I didn't have all of these different talents. But what I came to find out and, and really develop, as I'm sure many of your listeners have, is that I had a talent and a love for communication. And it wasn't just to judges and to juries and to arbitrators, but there were certain things that I learned, certain uh, passions that I developed over the course of my career. Some of those were geared toward telling my clients how to avoid me right? How to avoid the problem before it becomes a problem. And even when it does become a problem, how to avoid going mountain climbing over molehills. So I wanted to spread that to a larger audience. So I started speaking the way I think a lot of people do, uh, chambers of commerce and different trade organizations. I joined um, Associated Builders and Contractors, Building Congress and Exchange, some construction and general business uh, trade uh, associations. And I would speak there, but then I realized that although I got good reviews and uh, I was invited back, I was kind of like a really good local band, you know, where they get on stage and people think you're really good because you can play guitar really well and they can't play guitar. So they think you're really good, but you know that you haven't developed your talent the way you should. So I became involved with and got coaching from a an outfit that coaches international paid public speakers, coaches them worldwide. I worked with them, became a teaching fellow, then a senior teaching fellow with them. Then I started teaching public speaking at the university level. And each of these endeavors honed my skills as I went out and spoke to first local, then statewide, then national audiences. Wow, that's really cool. And what is Wagenheim U? So Wagenheim U is the writing, teaching, and speaking aspect of the business. So Wagenheim Law is my law practice, and that is generally where you know I trade hours for time, whether it's in litigation or transactional work, mergers and acquisitions, or um, uh, you know representing people at trial and arbitration. Wagenheim U puts a lot of the speaking that I was doing nationwide and puts it online. So we have courses for project managers and for construction professionals and for entrepreneurs on things they need to know, primarily involving contracts and negotiation without having to pay my hourly rate. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm sure that that venture and your uh, law firm are very mutually reinforcing and beneficial. At least I'd hope so. They do sync well together. Often people who are in Wagenheim U may not rise to the level of wanting to pay an attorney, but there's quite a bit of overlap, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you seem like a true entrepreneurial lawyer. Yes. And many people thought that was a contradiction in terms, but I, I'm not one of those people. I really, I actually like the innovation. 
Well, I want to talk about some of the interesting cases you handled. You told me a bit about a case uh, called the Universal Case. Can you share a bit about that case with our listeners? Why don't you start with just the the basic facts and the underlying uh, dispute that gave rise to the litigation? So Universal, uh, Universal is actually the name of a subcontractor. My client was the general contractor, and it was a large state project. Universal was supposed to do the the grading on the project. And the problem with the grading on this particular project, because of weather and topography, et cetera, is that the project turned into a swamp. And by anybody's estimation, it was a swamp. So it was not contemplated to be a swamp, but it just became one. So the question then became, whose responsibility was it? Whose risk was it that the conditions would change to such an extent that the swamp had to be drained and cleared, et cetera, et cetera. And the issue really was, look, did Universal as the subcontractor promise just to get the site to grade and here's the price, period, whatever that is? Or were there certain contingencies, certain unit prices, certain unforeseeable circumstances that would enable them to go above the base contractual price? Now, I happen to be one of those people that believes primarily for business or construction that if you go to trial, or if you go to arbitration, that means somewhere along the line, somebody failed. Because I had hoped, the reason I didn't go into handling divorce is because I had hoped in business, reasonable heads would prevail, right? That there would be some back and forth, and while nobody would be happy, they would at least be happy that they didn't have to pay lawyers to go all the way through trial. And all of our litigator audience members are right now just saying, yeah, right, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, okay. So I was naive. Look, it was 34 years ago, but that's that's what my hope was. But your yeah, right audience members are exactly correct. Um, reasonable heads did not prevail. So we we went to trial, and it seems like a very kind of run-of-the-mill matter, except tempers were really inflamed, and this one happened to be tried before a jury, which is unusual. And so when trying a case, when actually thinking about it in the courtroom, and I know your listeners are familiar with figuring out what your themes are, and of course, how you're going to present your evidence in concert with your testimony and how those two marry up, so how to make it an engaging presentation. But with the jury, the fear is even more pronounced that you might lose them because you're dealing with different terminology. As you said, even if these people are familiar with contracts, it would be rare for a member of the jury to be familiar with the ins and outs of construction contracts, what a change order is, what this plan looks like, how to tell what grade or what lines there are on these documents without losing them. And you don't want to become so professorial that they have, you know, horrible high school flashbacks and, you know, lose themselves in that while you're talking. You said this one's in front of a jury, and that is unusual for a construction case. Now, most construction cases have an arbitration provision, and that seems to me to be by design, isn't it? Not just by one party that might be demanding it, but that seems sort of everybody in a construction deal is often on the same page in that regard because of the complexity of the issues. Is that a fair assessment of the role of arbitration clauses, and how unusual is it for these to get in front of a jury? It's extremely unusual, in my experience, for it to get in front of a jury. It's not all that unusual to get in front of a judge for a bench trial. But I agree with you that many, many contracts require arbitration for a number of reasons, one of which is that with arbitration, you're guaranteed to have an arbitrator that is familiar with the industry, 
where you don't have to explain what the grade lines are and what a change order is and what the prime contract is and what you mean by those uh, that terminology. Whereas a judge could have just come off of a criminal matter, handled a divorce case, a DUI, and then he or she is thrown into construction and, and you have to orient that person from square one. So while I've done a number of bench trials in uh, construction, the jury trials for me at least are few and far between. But this one had it. It wasn't a contract that we had, uh, that, that my office had seen in advance. And so we didn't negotiate it. So you play the cards you're dealt and you're going to be in front of a jury. And so one of the things that I focus on when, when being in front of a jury, and I started focusing on this after I started honing my public speaking skills, was blocking and staging. So a lot of what we talk about are, okay, what, what's the language we're going to use? What are the arguments? What are the questions? What are the answers we want to elicit? What's our closing argument and our opening statement and all of that stuff? But what I really hadn't given too much thought to was where am I going to be in the courtroom at each of these stages? Because if you think about a drama, if you think about anything that's remotely engaging on Netflix or, or network TV, you're not just having people read a script no matter how well-written the script is. You're seeing action, and you're seeing interaction, and you're seeing movement, and in many ways, that is what's keeping your attention. Sometimes, it's what informs your reaction, right? Because if, for example, uh, one of the things that, that I had read, um, and I wish I could give credit where credit is due, it is not mine, but it was uh, from a prosecutor who was talking about how he wanted the jury to look at that criminal defendant and be angry. But people don't generally get angry at people they don't even know. A lot of people, most people, I hope, have a tendency to want to be nice or understanding or, or empathetic to some degree. So the prosecutor who was writing this said that, so I go over and I confront them and I stand in their space and I point at them because that's what I want the jury to do figuratively. I point. Now, I don't know whether, because I don't prosecute, I don't know whether that's effective or off-putting, but I do know that it's an interesting thought about how to amplify your message with where your body is in space. So I'll give you an example from the uh, Universal case. The president of Universal, who was their primary witness, I was worried. I think he was totally wrong. He was totally at fault for some of the things he did, but he was a nice person. He's an older gentleman. He was close to retirement. This was his company. And I thought that there would be a lot of sympathy for him, especially when my client was a bigger company, general contractor. They had laid out a lot of dollars to subsidize his work, but the emotions would be on the side of the, the small guy, I thought. So when I was cross-examining him, if I started out across the room yelling at him, I would be the jerk, right? That would just kind of exacerbate the feeling that everybody's coming down on this guy. Absolutely. Everybody is. So what I wanted to do when I wanted him to concede certain points on the contract, mm -hmm. I wanted to see if I could actually get close to him. And the judge did allow me to do that. So I was right next to him at the witness stand, pointing out certain things in the, in the contract. The message being that I'm working with him to puzzle through something. I'm not yelling at him. I'm not confronting him. I'm working with him. But 
When I got to a point in the examination where what he was saying didn't make sense, then I could back up physically, and I stood beside the jury, close to the judge and the jury in that space in between, because I wanted my body language to be saying, well, now you can just explain it to us, all of us, me and the jury and the judge, we're all one unit, we're all deciding this, so explain it to us. I didn't want him to whisper this to me because I didn't want to be collaborating with him or going back and forth. I wanted him to explain it. And so you back up so that you are one of the people that he's explaining it to. And then once I'm backed up, I have to make that calculation. Okay, now I'm across the courtroom. How am I going to walk across back to where I want to be without either making the move? All movement should be intentional. It shouldn't look like a quirk or something you forgot on the other side of the courtroom. And it shouldn't look threatening, like now you're rushing the witness stand. There should be a method. So what are the points in my examination when I'm naturally going to have a transition to either cross to the trial table and look at a note or or consult something, or cross back to the witness stand so that I can resume showing him where his mistake was, but in a non-confrontational way? Really interesting observation about being the jury, so to speak. Is the jury always identifying with you as you're up there examining a witness? You know, you say you're standing next to him to sort of puzzle this out together. The way I interpreted what you said, almost bringing the jury along with you to do that and then stepping back and giving him space so that he can then explain it to you as almost a member of the jury yourself. So is that that fair to say that's kind of your goal is to sort of be the jury or to be someone that the jury can identify with or project themselves onto? At times. So there's different roles that I want to play with the jury. Sometimes I want to be their champion. If I think that the other side has been unjust, that the jury would be angry. Now, that wasn't the case in Universal. But if I thought the jury would be angry, I want to be their champion. I want to confront. As I said with the example of the prosecutor, that's when, you, that's when I point figuratively. The two main positions that I want to play, the two main relationships I wanted to have with the jury there, the first one is standing by them so that I'm one of them, so that he can explain to us. The other one I cross, and I'm not explaining something to him, but there comes a point when if I'm at the trial table or close to it somewhere in the well, I want to be the teacher. I want to teach the jury about construction contracts with the um, president of Universal, just as a, a minor character actor. He's not even the star of this drama, because when I'm the teacher teaching the jury what I want them to know, I'm the star of the drama. I'm the star, they're the audience, and he's just kind of the Greek chorus saying, yes, 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 that's correct, yes, that's correct. That's all I need him for. But you have to be at different spots in the courtroom to maximize that effect. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Fort's Legal has you covered. I use Fort's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Force Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Force Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. 
visit them at fortslegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. And just want to pick up on another observation you made about how I don't know if choreographed is the word that you use, but every movement should be thought out and planned and, well, maybe not pre-planned, but done deliberately. Yes. How do you balance that with the need to be natural and authentic and not communicating or coming across as overly planned uh, or forced or overly um, orchestrated? You know, it's a, it's a really tough thing to do. And, you know, I think I do it well, but I don't know. It's hard to judge when you're outside. But... I don't write it out word for word, especially in cross. You can't write it out word for word because I don't know what he's going to say. But I do have my bullet points. I don't have it memorized, but I have it internalized, meaning I know where I want to go. And I know at which points I want to make my transition. So that I do practice. But I don't practice the exact words because then it becomes very forced. It becomes inauthentic. So that's kind of the balance that you have to run. But I have to know what I'm getting to. And, you know, before I started really working on the craft, I paced. I used to joke around about that on stage. I would say, look, the bad news is I pace when I talk. The good news is that I have a marked absence of gross motor skills and I might trip over a cable. So there's that. (laughs) But I learned that, yeah, stop joking around about pacing. Just don't pace because every movement should be intentional. There should be a purpose. Right. And pacing can really kind of up the anxiety level, can up the energy level, not always in a good way in the room. It can up the anxiety level. You know, geez, God forbid if I have coins in my pocket and I'm flipping the coins in my pocket. I know this is audio, but you you can see my hand movement. I'm just moving it around. You can imagine the coins jingling or if you have anything to fiddle with. All of those things detract from the jury's focus on the aspects of the case you want them to focus on. They take away from it. Well, circling back to the case itself, overall, how did the trial go and what was the outcome for your client? So Universal had claimed about a million two from my client. My client had counterclaimed for 600,000. The fact of the matter is that Universal had no money. My client had a right to the 600. They didn't care about this, getting a judgment for the 600 because a judgment is nothing but a hunting license. They really just wanted to get out. So on cross-examination, as we were going through the cross, and it was after five days that I actually got a chance to cross, we got to the point where I could see, it was actually sad because I could see this is an older gentleman and he was fighting so hard. And I finally saw that he just became deflated. I I don't know whether he knew he didn't have a case or he knew he wasn't going to win or whatever, but he just He just became so deflated, and I asked for a break and um, went to opposing counsel, who I for whom I had a lot of respect. I have a lot of respect. Good lawyer, and I said to him, "Look, you know you're not going to win this. You're not going to win. You don't have the records. Your guy was not. He was not a great subcontractor, but he wasn't really good at keeping all of those records that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast." They all favored my client because my client was a professional in keeping that documentation, and he wasn't. Long story short, they agreed to to dismiss after all that time and trial. They just dropped as long as we would drop the counterclaim, and we did, and we walked. Excellent result. It was a good result, except we had to go all the way through to trial to, to get to that point. 
But it was a good result, but it stuck with me. That deflation on the other side, it just was sad to me. Uh, just from a human standpoint, human being to human being, it was actually, my co-counsel and I talked about it for a long time afterwards. It was just kind of sad. Yeah, really. Well, I want to talk about the other case that you mentioned too. I'm calling it the elevated case. I think that was the name of your client. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what um, what prompted that case? So my client was a drone, I won't say manufacturer, but they take parts of drones and they put them together. So they create their own drones and they teach. And by drones, I don't mean the little things that you can get your nephew as a birthday present. I mean, these things are big enough with a wingspan large enough to decapitate a deer. You know, they're big. And they have to be big because they have to carry an industrial-sized camera as well as, uh, and they're complicated. They take two remotes because one to fly the drone, but the other to manipulate the camera if it can go back and forth. So the case really hinged on the complexity of the drone, whether my clients had delivered what they had promised. It was an interesting case in that the other side's point was they wanted their money back and they wanted all these damages because they said they wanted it to be a simple operation drone. Well, when my client heard simple operation drone, what he translated that to was as simple as you could possibly be for the requirements that this guy had, right? So there's this fundamental disconnect where the customer, the plaintiff, thought that he could get a drone to do everything he wanted and it would be as simple as operating a Nintendo. And my guy as a professional thought, I can give you everything you want and I can make it a lot more simple than the other alternatives, but you'd still need a lot of training on it. And so we first had to show that the other side was unreasonable, that they that they had looked around at a lot of drones, they had owned other drones. And the first thing we had to do was explain to the jury, like I said, this wasn't your nephew's drone. This was a drone, and that was the line that I used. This was a drone with over a six-foot span that could decapitate a deer if it was flown too low. So it's powerful. So we brought in the drone. And then the decision had to be made, are we going to have my client set it up because it comes in different pieces? And they're supposed to be the experts. But what if they fumble? What if they can't quite get it or make it fit or whatever? Then they play right into the other side's narrative that they weren't the experts they held themselves out to be. And then where do you set this drone up? Because the jury's going to be really curious. They're going to forget everything anybody's saying because they want to see the drone. So when do you bring it in? Where do you set it up? How do you have them manipulate the drone so that it's engaging, but they don't lose themselves, meaning the jury, they don't lose themselves in the mechanics of the drone itself and forget the fundamental points. So it was just an interesting, working with that kind of prop was just an interesting experience and, and calculation. Well, and I don't know if this is by design or not, but that very much goes to your point about blocking and staging again, some of these physical dynamics of the courtroom. That's exactly right. Well, tell us what decisions did you make? When did you roll it out and how did you use that in the courtroom, the, the actual drone? I rolled that out late in the trial, as late in the trial as I could. Because I wanted to be able to say, they won't show you and I will, right? Because they were the plaintiff and they were going first. And so first thing I wanted to do was I wanted an opportunity to tell the jury that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill a need that the plaintiff didn't. And the next thing I wanted to consider is where could I put my client so that he was the one teaching the jury? 
he was the authority figure again. He was the professor of drones. So what he says, he's imbued with that authority, and they, they're going to tend to believe him because they've spent 45 minutes in his classroom. So how do we make this his classroom? And I asked the judge if I could turn the trial table and set this up. And so we took a break, and the judge let me manipulate some of the set pieces in the in the courtroom so that I could accommodate the drone and I could show exactly, give him enough workspace, because we had worked this out in my office in the conference room. I, I needed to know how much workspace he needed, horizontal surface area, to actually put things together. Yeah, so I brought it out then, and then I put it away. Because I didn't want the other side to be using it and to be able to steal some of that professorial magic with their experts. I wanted their experts to be really dry and just talking from the stand, whereas my guy got to have an intimate teaching experience with the jury. Yeah. And how did the, um, how did the trial go? The trial went well. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. You can, you can always go undefeated if you define what a win is. So I can't represent that we got off scot-free. I can I can represent that the jury verdict, which was against my client, was for less than my client's offer to pay in settlement. We figured we were going to get tagged with something due to other things that, that there's no need to get into. We figured we were going to get tagged, but the whole point was they were asking for some five or six times what the settlement offer was, and we got off for less than the settlement offer. My clients walked out happier than the other side. I guess that's a win, but it wasn't a clear zero verdict. Yeah, that's great. Well, those are fantastic cases. Just wondering if you can share some broader reflections. I think your insights about what I've been calling the physical dynamics of the courtroom, what you've been calling in much better, more memorable phrasing, the blocking and staging aspect of trial presentation. What does every lawyer need to understand about blocking and staging? Well, I think that blocking and staging goes to a larger point of how you want to present. That's a a subsection of it. When I started working and doing trial work, all I had really seen about trial work was what was on TV. I knew the rules and things from law school, but all I had seen was on TV. And what that meant is when you're cross-examining, you are rude and dismissive and you're looking for a mic drop moment. You're kind of a jerk. That's what all those things on TV, you know, you've got this air of superiority, you have every comeback and you make that person look like a fool and and it's very adversarial because that's what makes for good TV. It's good drama. Well, and a lot of lawyers seem to try to apply that in real life. Yes, a, a lot do. And some, I'm sure, are very effective. Well, sometimes effectively, sometimes uh, not so much. But uh, yeah. often you see you know, an adversarial, severe posture in, in settings where it's just not appropriate or where it's just not effective and it backfires. You do. And, and for me, I realized that I'm not that guy. I, you know, I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to be a jerk to these people just because they're on the other side. And so... I had to find a style that was authentic, that where I could keep advocating for my client, I could press the point, I could could become confrontational when necessary, but always respectful and civil to not only the witnesses, but to the, to the other side. I had to be comfortable in my own skin. And I would say the same, and that was one of the big lessons to learn, that I didn't have to be Jane Smith, who's really, really good and got million-dollar verdicts because I'm not the same person as she is. I had to be who I am. And I found with blocking and staging that there are many ways to do it. I I do it in a way that that makes me comfortable, that feels very natural to me. It doesn't feel, to your point in an earlier question, it doesn't feel inauthentic or forced. 
because I know what my natural, even even now talking, I'm talking with my hands. I wouldn't keep my hands straight at my side because that's not how I talk. So I think with blocking and staging and anything else, you have to be true to yourself. It was just with blocking and staging was another dimension to my performance that I could flesh out where I didn't even know anything about it before. Well, those are great insights. Really appreciate your time. Anything else you'd like like our listeners to know? No, I I just really appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast. I know it, it serves such a great purpose for your listeners. So yeah, I hope I was able to give some some value. Oh, absolutely. Loved hearing about those cases and loved hearing your insights and about your practice. And um, tell us, where can listeners find you? Um, they can find me at wagonheim.com, which is wagon, W-A-G-O-N, H-E-I-M as in Michael.com or WagonheimU.com. And really, because I have an unusual name, it's Elliot Wagenheim. You Google that, there's only one. <laughs> and it's 1L1T, like T.S. Elliot, right? <laughs> 1L1T, yes. Okay. And well, I know you also have a podcast as well. Can you tell us about that? We have a podcast I co-host with my friend Jody Hume, who is an executive coach, and it's called So Here's My Story. It's about business because that's what we both love. And we believe, just like with litigation, like with any trial, so many business conversations, necessary business conversations, start with a story. This happened, whether this employee said this or those people said that, or this is what happened in this, you know, when I tried to do business with them. And we, we flesh out business issues that arise from a story that uh, one of us tells. Well, I have to tell you, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've listened to many, many episodes of it. It's it's true. This is an unsolicited plug. I would commend it to our listeners. Um, and I love the concept of starting with a story. So instead of coming in and saying, I'm now going to teach you a lesson, and here's the proposition that I'm trying to teach you, and now I'm going to find a story to uh, support that proposition. Instead, you guys just start talking and telling like an anecdote, often something funny, and then drawing a lesson from it. And it's really, uh, one, it helps that that you and your co-host have such engaging personalities and great voices for radio and all that. But also, it's really valuable podcast, and I, I really enjoy it. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Elliot, really enjoyed talking today. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Litigation War Room. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Roy, great to see you. Great to see you, Max. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm excited about the uh, upcoming Business Law Symposium. Wanted to give listeners a chance to hear from you about your part in the symposium. Can you tell our listeners just a bit about yourself and the firm that you work with? Sure. I'm uh, Roy Sexton, Director of Marketing at Clark Hill. We are a law firm with 26 offices across the country, as well as Dublin and Mexico City, with 650 attorneys. Am Law. 105. I think the last time I checked, we were 112. We're, we're knocking on the door of AMLAW 100. I don't know. The but people. who's counting, right? Who pays attention yeah, to those right. things, right? Well, lawyers, yeah. you know, it's all it's all about the horse race. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful organization. I've been there three years. I've been in legal for a decade. I was in healthcare before that and at Deloitte Consulting 100 years before that. But, I, you know, I, I Clark Hill is a really wonderful organization with an entrepreneurial spirit and I think a really nice sense of inclusion for all of us at the table. And I've really enjoyed working there. I don't think people in Michigan realize we are as big as we are, which is probably partly my fault as a marketing person. But, you know, we're, we're a pretty sizable organization and a big player in this space. So For sure, for sure. Well, Roy, you're going to be participating in a panel discussion or a roundtable discussion called Building Your Brand and Protecting It. Why don't you just tell listeners a little bit about what they can expect on that panel? 
Well, I don't know. We had a prep call yesterday, and Max, you got your work cut out for you. This is a roundtable of high energy, high idea, crazy people um, <laughs> that that Max has to wrangle for about thirty minutes. Right, I'm moderating just to just for my way of context. Yes, this is the panel that I'll be moderating, and uh, yeah, we yes. we had. High energy is a, is a nice way to describe the, the cat-hurting exercise think, that we did yesterday. I think I said about 18 times in the call, I think Max is the moderator. Well, they're lawyers, so what do you expect, right? It goes to show that these are people who are really passionate about what they do, and they're excited for the opportunity to discuss it. But, you know, Mark Rossman has put together a fantastic program, and we have six people who are on the panel. Lindsay Sikora from, from Rossman's firm, Jennifer Belville from Foley, Tyler Cady uh, from To Engage Now, RJ Cronkite from Dinsmore, longtime acquaintance of mine, Marianne Sabo, who's a PR legend here in the region, and then you, Max, our fearless leader. But, you know, we, we have a mix of attorneys and those of us who, I hate the term non-attorney, but for lack of a better term, who did not go to law school, but who are marketing professionals, PR media professionals. And I think what you know I've understood our approach will be is Max is synthesizing kind of our areas of passion and then letting each of us kind of extemporaneize on that a little bit, if that's a word, what we've done in that space. I mean, for me, we launched our new brand and website in uh, May, and it's really been the lion's share of my work for the past three years at Clark Hill, was building the team, we've got an incredible group of people at Clark Hill. And what we did was a very inclusive approach. We surveyed everybody in the firm. It wasn't just the opinion of attorneys. It was every single person who has a Clark Hill address got to participate in a survey to tell us what are our strengths, what are our challenges. We did client interviews. We did focus groups. We worked with One North to develop the brand and then effectuate it on the website and via video through Tell Studios and a digital platform. And we've, you know, we've gotten about 500,000 views on our brand videos so far. And what we found was we have a very large culture. We've grown through acquisition and a combination over the past two or three years, like many firms or actually past 10 years. But the cultures had never really been integrated. They just hadn't done that work. So this brand gave us a unique opportunity, both internally and externally, to weave all of that together and not have any one voice dominate versus another, but say, what is the best of the best? And pull that together. And what we found was, at the end of the day, there were our values. And that's what we really incorporated into our brand message. We had, in the voice of our own people, attorneys and those who didn't go to law school alike, who we are and what we do. And it's been really a remarkable ride, and I'm really proud of it. So, you know, I'm going to try to find better words than that uh, on the panel. But, you know, I, I think we have other folks like Marianne, I know, wants to talk about crisis management and how do you basically protect your brand in the face of kind of the challenges that we see law firms face. I think RJ is going to deal with how you manage your digital footprint as a practitioner and, and how you get your voice out there in unique ways while being part of a larger organization. So, I mean, there are a lot of rich topics that I think we will be able to address hopefully in quick fashion. Well, I'm really excited to participate. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a great event. And I think um, you in particular, Roy, shared some really interesting insights and are doing exciting things with your firm. And, and we'll look forward to hearing more from you at the symposium. Well, I'm just honored to be asked. No, I, I don't know what, maybe I'm old and fat. Now people ask me to do these things. But for years, I was like, no one ever invites me to these things. And they are now, which is really nice. <laughs> for sure. Something's happening. That's right. Maybe they'll regret that. Max, I got to ask you a quick question before we go. What are you looking forward to most, either from our panel, maybe it's just getting through it, or or the symposium itself? I mean, I know you, you, you're playing a lot of different roles through this project, and what are you excited about? Well, thanks for asking. That was unscripted, but I appreciate the question. I think one unique thing about this symposium is just the number of presentations and the number of panelists. So I think it's going to be very fast-moving and packed with content. Sometimes you attend these uh 
symposiums and conferences, and they may be interesting, but sometimes they uh, they can drag on a bit. And I think that's not going to be the case here. <laughs> there's yeah. there's a lot of content that's very fast <laughs> fast moving, and so um, I think that it's going to be for attendees a drinking from the fire hose experience in a good way. And our panel in particular, I mean, we've got some really great attorneys and, and other professionals with some really fabulous insights. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I love that. Yeah. Eat your spinach and drink your coffee before, which is kind of a strange combination, but that's right. Be ready. Have energy. <laughs> we're coming at you. That's right. Okay, Roy. Well, <laughs> well, thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you in January. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.